Yes, it has been a an eventful week around my house. Apparently, Verizon will send you a text when your child dials 911. How about that? That's handy. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was asleep Tuesday night and uh and I got a text at 9:41 exactly, 9:41. I remember now that it was 9:41. And I was asleep and my phone was right by my head because I'd been listening to some preaching as uh, I was going to sleep, very spiritual thing to do. See how spiritual I am. And um I usually I almost always turn the ringer off. But I forgot to that night. And so at 941, I got this little chirp, and Verizon is telling me, your son just dialed 911. And I thought, well, I should call him. You know, see how he's doing. See what's going on. See why he dialed 911. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of one of those things that doesn't really hit you until you step back and think about it till you drive down and see the vehicle afterward and then you realize wow this could have been an entirely different situation than than uh what we're looking at by the way i invited my neighbors to church they came very glad to see them welcome did it take you a minute to realize what i just said took me a while to think of that, so it's all right. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, so some, uh, some months ago, early last year, I guess it was, I um, started sharing with you um, a message that I titled, It's Not About Me. And that was a long message, and I didn't even finish it all, and so I'm going to continue that today. And uh, because that is a reality that just continues, that the, the many facets of which continue to dawn on me, that it's not about me. And it's something, as I mentioned before, that's just ingrained mostly into the Western mindset. I don't think they have as big a problem with this in the East as we do here. Um, there are a lot of places around the world where China's a good example um, it is ingrained in them that you're nothing. You know, family is something and people within the family are something, but the government really emphasizes the fact that you're expendable, you're really not worth anything to us, and they back that up with action there. There are a lot of other countries that are like that, and, but here in the West, we are trained from birth to believe that it's all about us. Everything is all about us. And we spend an entire lifetime either reinforcing that and trying to structure our lives to conform to that reality or trying to combat that. And uh, it's not an easy thing to combat because it goes against, it's not just cultural, it goes against our very nature. It goes against who we are. It, you can ask any uh, two-year-old child that has just begun to talk who it's all about, and they're gonna, they would tell you if they could, it's all about me. And it's been all about them for two years, and so that's all they know, and it's a parent's job to teach their children it's not all about you in as gentle a, a way as possible, but effective, because somebody who doesn't understand that is going to have a very difficult life. And being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be virtually impossible if you think that he is all about you. Praise the Lord. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. That's just, uh, that's just my little preface there today. <clears throat> if we could stand and uh, go to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we will begin in verse 15. Very potent passage of scripture here. 
Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus himself. It says, who is the image of the invisible God? He is the image of the invisible God. He is what you see of God. He is all you will ever see of God. There will never be any other visual that you will get of the creator than the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Because it's all about him. He didn't create us for us. He didn't create us so that he could bless us and do wonderful things for us and lead us down a primrose path of glory and comfort. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things. And by him, all things consist. That's a very potent phrase right there. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, or all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Praise the Lord. Pastor Thorson, would you pray and ask the Lord to help us today? Thank you. You may be seated. This awful mindset of it's all about me is very easy for us to bring into the church and take everything that that surrounds the things of God, including God himself, and try and make all those things about us. And uh, that really creates a great deal of trouble, a great deal of conflict. But the more that you know him, and you know this is a journey. We're told in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, we're given the imperative, he says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this is a journey that we're on. We're not... We're not static. We're not just, we, we, we come and we get saved and we sit down on a church pew and everything stays the same until we uh, go on to glory. This is a journey and we're growing and we're progressing and we're growing in grace. We're growing in the knowledge of who he is and what a challenge that verse is. Grow. You must grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because that knowledge affects everything. That knowledge changes everything. It puts every it puts you the entirety of your life in a whole new context and it changes your thinking. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind and that happens in the context of a growing knowledge of who he is. Praise the Lord. So the further you go down that road, the more you begin to see how it's really not about us. It's not about me. It can't be about me. It's really all about him. And not just, you know, some things, a few things, this and that is all about him. Everything, everything is all about him. I mean, that, that is a broad spectrum reality that everything is all about him and so I began to go through a bunch of bullet points of all of the things that we tend to make about us we tend to assume is about us but they're really not and uh, I'm not going to go back through those I'm just going to pick up where I left off and um, one of the things that uh, uh, you know we I will back up a little bit. Things like um, our ministry. You know, when we come into the kingdom of God, uh, we have a desire to labor for God and do things for God and do things in the church. And, 
We have these little things called ministry sometimes, and it's very easy to think that those things are about us. And, and maybe even that they were designed to bring glory to us. Well, guess what? If anything is bringing glory to me, guess who is not getting the glory for it? Because it's all about him. Praise the Lord. And um, uh, just moving forward now, something that, that I began to think about that dawned on me uh, is the baptism of the Holy Ghost is not about me. It's not about us. It is a gift, indeed. But it's about him. It's not for my blessing or my benefit or my sanctification or my use, quote-unquote, in fact, it would, it would help us to change our terminology of the Holy Ghost and remember that it's not an it. See, how, see what I just did? It's not an it. It's easy to do that. The Holy Ghost is not an it. It's a he. It's a person. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. I apologize for not getting you a list of scriptures over there. I'm sure you'll keep up just fine, though. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, if, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And you note there the equation of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, because they are one and the same. And so it is his desire and his will to dwell in us, and he made the provision for that thing to occur. And what a marvel that is is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's easy to take that for granted, but think about what a, what a magnificent thing that is. And he does that not for our sake, but for his own sake, just like he created us for his own sake. Isn't that what Revelation 4.11 says? That all things, he has created all things and for his pleasure were all things created. For his pleasure, praise the Lord. So not only is the Holy Ghost not about me, it's really not even about the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is about the Lord Jesus. Yes, he is the Lord Jesus, but he is about and because of the Lord Jesus, because it's really all about him. And John chapter 16, verse 13 says, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, see the he there? The spirit of truth is come. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall speak not of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, for he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So the Lord Jesus is glorified in the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is given to men to lead them into the truth about who God is. That's what Scripture says. And, and in my thinking about this, um, I came to an uncomfortable conclusion. I think I, I talked with you about this, Brother Smith. Um, I, I asked the question, is it possible to make an idol of the Holy Ghost? Ooh, that's uncomfortable stuff right there. It really, really is. But if we detach the Holy Ghost from the Lord instead of bearing in mind that the indwelling is all about him, then the Holy Ghost can actually be made an it and objectified and even idolized. You're going to have to take that home and think about it yourself but it's it's a pretty interesting point but it's all about him it's all about the lord jesus okay so i'll just leave that little thought with you there it's uh i'm not even saying that i've got that concreted in my mind but the answer is yeah you can make an idol out of the holy ghost when you detach the holy ghost from the lord jesus it can be praise the lord sorry about that i don't didn't mean to make anybody uncomfortable there. Here's another thing that's not about me. Forgiveness and remission of sins is not about us. We benefit from it, absolutely, but it's not about us. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 24 and 25. 
tells us this very clearly. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou, listen to this, thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Wow. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. So, verse 25, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. Doesn't that crash somebody's theology? Because we think that that's all about us. That he forgives us so that we can then be saved. But he says here, I blot out transgressions for mine own sake. For my own purposes will I not remember your sins. It's for his sake, not for ours. Do we benefit from that? Oh, absolutely. We benefit for sure, but that's secondary at best, not primary. That phrase, thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. All those sacrifices that the Jews made were intended to get God to roll away their sins for another year so they could continue to do their own thing. It was all about them. They made God to serve them. That's what he said right there. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs and he goats. I'm tired of all that stuff, guys. It doesn't please me. And we get the explanation from that in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22, which is some a scripture that probably most everybody can uh, quote in some form or another. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. In other words, it would have been better for them to have been obedient in the first place than to have sinned and gone astray and then offer sacrifices just to get those sins rolled away so that their standing with him could be restored. To obey in the first place is better than to sacrifice after the fact. Praise God. So they expected that they're following some ritual that he instituted somehow obligated to him, obligated him to do what they wanted him to do. Thou hast made me to serve with thy sins, he said. And that same thing can apply to us today as well. Men simply do not glorify him as God. We'll glorify him as our suffering Savior, but only when he pleases us. Mm. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? See, it's not his wrath or the fear of his wrath that leads people to true biblical repentance. It's his goodness. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And back to Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were at odds with him, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners... And, by the way, before we ever asked him to forgive us. Isn't that something worth thinking about? Before we were ever even acknowledging ourselves as sinners, he died for us and forgave us. Praise the Lord. Which leads to a, a, the next thing that's not about me. The incarnation is not about me. 
It is a fallacy of Christendom today that says that God's sole purpose in becoming a man was to die on a cross and save us from our sins. That is a common fallacy. That the sole purpose, I heard somebody say that, that, that God had no other purpose in becoming a man than to die on a cross and save us. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. That makes the incarnation all about me. The incarnation is not all about us. God's purpose in becoming a man was to declare himself to his creation, to be justified in his creation, and he is justified in his creation. It was to manifest himself to the creation which he created to know him. His purpose has always been to be known in his creation, and so that means that our purpose must be to know him and to make him known. His purpose in becoming a man was to make himself known in his creation. And so our purpose should be to know him. Now, John chapter 1, verse 18, says that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him and declare means to draw out or consider out loud or unfold or to draw out in a narrative jesus christ narrates god and hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 takes that even a step further where it says who the lord jesus being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person Think about that. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory. He is what you see of the glory of God. He is the glory of God made visible, emanating or outbeaming into creation. Praise God. And it says the express image of his person, the character of God is manifest in Jesus Christ. And that scripture right there is telling us that Jesus Christ is all you're ever going to see visibly of the glory of God. Yeah. Luke chapter 10 verse 22 says, Jesus says, All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth, knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Jesus Christ reveals the Father in creation. Somebody say praise the Lord. John chapter 14 beginning with verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and you've seen him. And Philip, Philip thought, ah, what is he talking about? He says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus says unto him, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and yet thou hast not known me? You haven't gotten this quite yet? Let me explain it a little further to you then. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? When you've seen me, you've seen all you need to see. Mm-hmm. So the incarnation was not about us, and neither was Calvary. Calvary was not about me. It was not about my salvation. The purpose of Calvary was not to deliver me from my sins, at least not primarily. To be sure, it did cause that very effect, but that was a secondary cause. Because God being God can have multiple purposes to what he does. But Calvary primarily demonstrated in living and dying reality the absolute goodness of God and the absolute mercy of God and the absolute justice of God. And that's not a subject that I can do justice to, but I know it's been talked about here in this church, the justice of Calvary. It was his willingness and his desire to take ownership and set to right that which had gone wrong in his creation. 
as only he could. The creator justified himself at Calvary. Calvary was a declaration of the extreme and unparalleled magnificence of God's character. It demonstrated for us things about him that nothing else could. It demonstrated them in a way that nothing else could. And that is why the Lord is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. God knew back at the beginning and even before the beginning, because there was a before the beginning, uh, that things were going to go wrong here. He knew before he created anything what would happen to his creation and what would have to happen in order to set it back to right. He didn't make any of this stuff up on the fly. Calvary was not a response. It was a plan. A plan all the way back that predates creation itself. Praise God. It's uh, Acts 15, 18 where the Apostle James says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he would have to do because he knew what we would do. Praise God. And let me just add this. Of all of the religions of the world, there is none with a storyline like Calvary. No other God of any other religion has demonstrated such an extreme love, a radical love, a self-sacrificing, ultimately magnificent, extravagant love. No human mind could even conceive such a thing. I'm telling you here, the sheer absurdity that this book could somehow be a work of fiction originating in the minds of men is completely detached from rational, reasonable thinking. Calvary proves that. Is it even possible that the concept of Calvary could originate in the mind of a human being? Not possible. Absolutely not possible. This story did not and could not have originated in the mind of humanity. He's not all about us. He became one of us. He became a man, and then he gave all of himself as that man for us so that we could know him as fully as any man can know, an absolute transcendent God. That's what Calvary was all about. That's awesome stuff right there. And so what this leads me to is the conclusion that my very life is not even all about me. Not only is none of all this other stuff not about me, I'm not even supposed to be about me. Mm. I'm all about him. Whether or not I ever acknowledge it or acknowledge him, I'm still all about him. My life, my existence, the blood in my veins, the breath in my lungs is all about him. Brother Smith and I were talking uh, last week about Acts chapter 17, verse 28, which says, in him, this is Paul preaching on Mars Hill. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's a scripture that's worth really chewing on for a while. And as I was doing that, it, the, the image that came to my mind was that of a child in the womb. That little baby, th this analogy is not perfect, okay, but just roll with me here for a little bit. That little baby inside its mother's womb, in her, that baby lives and moves and has its being, right? So just, just kind of expand that outward a little bit and realize that God, this transcendent God that, I mean, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. He is outside all of that. Everything that he has made is inside of him. In him, inside of him, we live and move 
and have our being. And that doesn't matter. It, it has, makes no difference whether or not you acknowledge him or have any awareness of him. You still live and move and have your being inside of him. You don't have to know who he is. You don't have to call him God. You don't have to be a Christian. Paul's talking about all of creation here. In him we live and move and have our being. We're all about him. It's all about him. Going back to Colossians chapter 1, the text that we opened with says that he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, in earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. I was created for him. He created me not for me to go about and do my own thing and structure my life in a way that pleases me and follow after my own path and my own rationale and my own thinking and, and do whatever it is that I want to do. Uh, a passage of scripture that drives me nuts is found in Jeremiah that says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Okay? What does that mean? That's personal, isn't it? This heart is deceitful above everything else in my life that can deceive me. Nothing in my life can deceive me like I can deceive me. It's deceitful above everything else. No one can deceive me like I can deceive myself. Deceitful above all things, and worse still, it is desperately wicked. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can read this for yourself. I'm just, don't shoot the messenger. You all have seen this before anyway. That's you. That's me. That's us. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That is the, the thing inside of me that tries to direct my life. If I don't submit that thing to him, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. But if I think that my life is all about me, guess what I'm following? That thing that is so utterly deceitful and so desperately wicked. Mm. Where were we? Verse 17. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. How can you read that any other way than it's all about him. And if you really want to continue down that road, not only is my life not about me, it's all about the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus himself was not all about himself. If he wasn't about himself, how much less so should I not be about myself? And to put an exclamation point on that, you go to Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5, where it says, Let this, be, uh, this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this begins to tell us about his nature. This tells us about his mind, about his thinking. Okay? It says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And what that phrase really means is, He did not seize his godly prerogatives. Even though he was God, he did not insist on being treated as God, worshiped as God, or enthroned as God while he was a man. All right? He did not, the place that he really deserved, he really, instead of, instead of coming to this earth by the way of every man, made of a woman, all right, in the lowliest of circumstances, he really deserved to just descend from the clouds with, with those angels heralding, trumpets blowing, you know, bolts of lightning, all that kind of stuff. I mean, kind of like it's going to happen at some point in the future. 
But he came the most humble way. And he did not go sit on the throne that was rightfully his. All right? He made himself of no reputation. Already humbled himself dramatically by God becoming man. What a humbling that is for starters. But he then went on to make himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, not a king, not a dignitary, not even a region, but a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even further and became obedient unto death. Death which had no claim on him. He was not destined to die a natural death in this world. And what I find so remarkable, the more I thought about this and the more I began to pay attention to it, the sheer number of times where he would perform a miracle or do something significant and then tell people, don't tell anybody about this. Isn't that remarkable? The number of times where he did something life-altering for somebody and then said, just keep a lid on this, all right? Because he didn't want to create a big fuss. He wasn't trying to start a megachurch. Think about, I think this is something else you and I were talking about, Brother Smith. Up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are there watching, and Moses and Elijah are there talking with the Lord. That's something, isn't it? And can you imagine these guys? Oh, this is going to be awesome PR. When we get down off this mountain, we're going to go to our Jewish brethren and we're going to tell them all about this because they revered Moses, didn't they? They revered Elijah, but Moses was the man. And they were to go to their Jewish brethren and say, you're not going to believe this. Most of them wouldn't, but some would. We saw, you know, Moses, the guy who, you know, the law and, and all the Ten Commandments and, you know, all the, the exodus from Egypt and all that stuff. We just saw him. We just saw him live and in person. And he was talking to Jesus. All right. I mean, think about the good PR that would have been. Think about the difference that would have made to the Jews who revered Moses. And what did Jesus say to those three guys before they left the mountain? Don't tell anybody about this. Not yet. Ah, that probably crushed them. Could you, I mean, what a secret that would have been for those three guys to have to keep. You ever had a secret that was just burning a hole in your pocket? Man, you wanted to tell somebody. Those guys couldn't tell anybody about that. They had just seen something absolutely unbelievable. And why? Because he wasn't trying to build an earthly kingdom. He wasn't trying to build a megachurch. And he didn't want to be put on the throne because he had a cross to go to. And if all of this stuff had been made known, he wouldn't have been able to go. He had to go to that cross. He humbled himself. He refused and shunned publicity. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even, oh, not just any death, even the death of the cross. A thousand messages of problem, maybe even a million about the cross, and not one of them does justice to it. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. He wasn't even about himself. You read this, you read this, this particular passage of Scripture right here, and it tells us that he wasn't on an earthly mission and he wasn't about himself. And then this passage leads off with, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if he wasn't even about setting up his own kingdom, how much less worthy am I of my own little kingdom? And how many people in spite of that go about their whole lives 
setting up for themselves their own little kingdom in which they rule and in which they receive all of the glory. The church is also not about me or us. It's easy to develop a, a, a really myopic point of view when, when you think about the church. And so we think that our church is the church. Well, the church is the one that he's building is much bigger than this. And, uh, and it is his. It's all his. The church is all about him. It's because of him. I still remember, I think I probably mentioned this before, um, there was a, a planning session. You know, churches have planning sessions where all the leaders sit around and strategize and talk about the things that they're going to do in the future and, and in the coming year and talk about their mission statement and all these kinds of things. And, and uh, there was a closing prayer over this planning session, and the last sentence spoken in that closing prayer was, thank you for being involved in what we are doing don't have to explain what's wrong with that because it's all about him he's not involved in what we're doing yes he cares about the things that pertain to us but we need to be more concerned about what he's doing we need to find out what he's doing and we need to get involved in what he's doing not ask him to get involved in what we're doing. He is the head of the church, and this is all about him. Praise the Lord. I'm going to move on and just close with uh, this, this closing thought here. You know, you can learn a lot from a high school football game. At, at a high school football game, there are, there are many participants. Out there on the field, at the center of the action is the team. You've got 11 players is it 11 players in a football team that, that are on the field at any one time? 11 or 9 or something? I don't know. I don't know that much about football. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. There's Matthew back there, a fount of useful information. <clears throat> so if you're at a Canadian... Uh, high school football game, there's 12 players. At an American one, there's 11, and they have everybody's attention of everybody in the stadium. Their every move is watched, right, and commented on. And on the sidelines, you've got the other players and the second stringers and the third stringers and the coaching staff and the cheerleaders and a few others, and there may be dozens of people standing down there on the sidelines and hundreds and hundreds of fans up in the stadium, but the game is all about the team, right? That's really who it's all about. And there's one other participant in the stadium, though, one who spends most of the game on the sidelines, one whose image the team bears, and his name is spelled out, uh, and his image is on their jerseys, their helmets, some of their street clothing, some of the clothing of the people in the stands, on the stadium, banners, Uh, The name and this image is everywhere. Bumper stickers on cars in the parking lot, the buses, and many of the fans are wearing uh, garments with the name and image of this character. They may even sing songs about this person. And the team is not called the team, but they're called by the name of this one participant. And he's very important. He's very well known. And everybody identifies themselves by him. Who is that? The mascot. You see where I'm going with this? Due to the the ubiquity of his name and the image on the school grounds and the clothing and the equipment and the signage and the team, a stranger to the whole thing would think that that gathering is all about him. But it's not, is it? 
And during lulls in the action of the game and during halftime, the mascot is summoned and trotted out before the fans to energize and excite them. And he may dance around and perform a little bit in order to encourage the fans to cheer louder and the team to play harder. And he might do this several times, but just for a few moments. And occasionally during the game, and then he'll be shuffled off to the sidelines where he spends the majority of his time to spectate the real action as the team resumes play. And sadly, in many churches, the Lord Jesus Christ is relegated to the office of mascot. All identify themselves by his name, Christian. And they sing songs about him and to him, and they talk about him during their meetings, and his name is shouted and chanted to create excitement. But in many churches, it's really not all about him. It's all about them and what they are doing. He's not the coach. He's not even the team captain. He's not even allowed to take any significant part in the goings-on. And since this is not a role that he agrees to play in the first place, he doesn't even participate, at least not according to their ideas. And see, you contrast that with a symphony. On the billboards, the marquees, the advertisements are two names, that of the conductor and that of the orchestra. And when all are in place and everyone watches and waits, for the conductor. They keep their eyes fixed on him, for on him they all wait, and he gives the orders, and he calls the tune, and nothing happens until he says so. And when he does, they all know what they have to do. They all know their little parts, for they've studied the material. They've also studied the conductor, and they know him. They know his preferences and his idiosyncrasies, and they follow him. During the performance, their eyes are on one of two things, the conductor or the music sheets, back and forth. They didn't write the music, and they don't stray from it. They're told what to do and what part to play, and he sets the cadence. He provides the cues. All follows. They are his players. They're his. It's all about him. Every flick of his wrist, every movement of his eyebrows, shrug of his shoulders, the wave of his hands is watched and followed, and there is an intimate bond between them. Without a conductor, a symphony becomes a cacophony. The great conductor knows the music because he wrote the score. He knows it. He knows exactly how it's supposed to sound. And what marvelous music that orchestra can make to those who behold. This orchestra knows their performance is not all about any one of them. They're just a part of a whole. They didn't write the music, and they won't get the glory for it. Occasionally, there are soloists, but their parts are only significant if they understand that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. The point of an orchestra is for no one player to stand out, but for everybody to contribute. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand. Sometimes it helps us. These analogies like this can help us to really visualize the way things are and the way they're supposed to be. It really is all about him. All of it is all about him. Every aspect of everything, this whole planet, everything, I mean, we're living in his world. We're walking on his creation. It's all his He owns it all, everything, and he made it all for him. And I'm just here for a little while, just a tiny little slide. It's amazing to me how people burst on the scene and think it's all about them, not realizing that this has been going on for a couple thousand years already. And if the Lord tarries, it's going to keep on going. We're just here for it. What what does the scripture say about our lives? It's a vapor, a little puff of smoke. So insignificant am I. And where you really begin to understand that with clarity is when you have a vision of him. When you see him the way Isaiah saw him. When you see him the way Job saw him. When you get an understanding of who he really is. I mean, Isaiah was a great prophet. 
he also was a revered prophet. And yet when he saw the Lord, he said, woe is me, I'm a mess. What he saw probably changed his life. And when he was done, he said, it's all about him. Praise the Lord. Could we just lift our hands for a little bit and just think about him? Just, just try and get your mind on him for a little bit. Concentrate on him and think about who he really is. And think about what we are in comparison to him. Search for all eternity. 